This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest. October 27th, 2022, the Are British Politics More or Less Crazy Than Ours edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast in Washington, D.C. I'm joined by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from New Haven, Connecticut. Hello, Emily. Hello. And from Manhattan, John Dickerson of CBS Primetime with John Dickerson. Hello, John. How are you? Hello, David. Hello, Emily. This week on the GabFest, the state of the race two weeks out. How do the midterms look? Then we will try to make sense of the chaos that has engulfed the UK and its politics recently. We'll talk to Bloomberg Opinions' Adrian Wooldridge. Then Justice Thomas protected Lindsey Graham from an election-related subpoena. We'll catch up on the various Trump election, Jan 6th uh, legal machinations that are going on. Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. And a reminder, this is our last regular show before our live show in Atlanta. Wednesday, November 2nd at 7 p.m. will be at Georgia Tech's first center for the arts, slate.com slash GabFest live to get tickets. Please come join us. It's going to be a really great show. We've got a good guest in hand. We have big plans for it. And um, it's just an incredibly interesting time to be in Georgia to talk about politics. So you wouldn't want to miss that, would you? Slate.com slash GabFest live. Join us on Wednesday, November 2nd. John, what is the state of the race now? What is happening with each side's closing argument? To use a favorite John Dickerson phrase. And do we have any strong indications about one part or the other thriving or struggling? I think we have to, you know, haul in the salt truck um, and, and, and the way you always would and the way I always have, which I have no is, idea what here's what it looks means. like. I'm so excited. Well, I mean, with the a salt grain of salt, salt, right? Oh, I thought it was grain of salt. Yeah, well, salt the roads also, because the road to perdition is paved with bad predictions. Um, so, all right, here's the deal. On the on the I think on the House side, it is pretty much as we as we talked about before, what's happening is you have um, you know, regular gravity of politics appears to be continuing to assert itself, which is that the um, party that controls the White House has a tough time. A party with a presidency under 50 percent is in bad shape. Um, and the mitigating issues, which were abortion and candidate quality, seem to to not be a sufficient shield against those historical trends. And also other things like the fact that, um, you know, you have a Democratic Party that doesn't want to reward its party for what it has done. But everything the Democratic Party has done uh irritates Republicans and makes them turn out uh, to stop the ruination of America by the further continuance of success by Democrats. So you have this awful condition for the Democrats. When they get things done, they don't get credit and they get pain. So in the House, that manifests itself in the fact that things like, um, you know, the House uh, district uh, in in deep blue areas like Rhode Island, you've got, which hasn't said to a, a Republican to Congress in the House for three decades, there's a competitive race there, which means it's not just the districts that are close, but there are blue areas where Republicans are making inroads. Will they win there? We don't know. But the fact that Democrats are having to worry and scramble um, and spend time, resources, and energy there suggests the, the, where the state of the map will be. And the Senate, 
you have, you know, you have some races that are only alive because they're bad Republican candidates and strong Democratic ones. Um, so it looks like the chance that Democrats will hold on to the Senate is still possible, um, but maybe not. I mean, we we that's really too close to tell. Um, and races like the the Pennsylvania Senate race where Fetterman seemed to be, um, you know, pulling away from his party. Uh, and its problems, obviously, that's, you know, uh, because of the recent debate and other things, but it was trending already getting closer. Um, it, it's uh, he's not able to pull away from the problems Democrats are having the way uh, people thought he might. And then, and that's true in Ohio and other places, too. We're going to go deep on Pennsylvania with a special episode on Sunday and special bonus episode in your feed. But let's talk about the most compelling political event of the week, Emily, probably the debate between John Fetterman and Mehmet Oz in the Senate race. What did you make of that? I think the substance of the debate was actually pretty telling that the candidates outlined their positions in a way that was clear, although I found the format crazy. It was moving so quickly. It was really as if people didn't have time to explain themselves. I was interested in, John, I wondered what you made of this, that Fetterman clearly said he would support Biden running again. He didn't try to distance himself from Biden. And Oz did the same thing with Trump. So in a sense, they were kind of being traditional party loyalists in that moment. I guess it would have been really weird if they had taken a different stance. But I noticed that. I listened to a very interesting episode of New York Times' The Daily on Thursday morning about the New York governor's race in New York in general. And it, it New York is, is uh, what's it called? It's a synecdoche for the whole country. It's, it's, a, it's a metaphor for the whole country, which is that you had the, the, the election sort of apparently at the start being fought on, on abortion and some on the kind of trouble that the Trumpists are causing and how we don't want Trumpists in, in elected office. But now that fall is here, crime, education, particularly those two issues, have taken so much of the mental brain space of voters. And it, there's such a big concern for people that even a state that Biden won by 23 points, it's an open question whether whether this uh, Democratic governor, incumbent governor, can hold her seat against a really MAGA, you know, uh, election denying uh, congressman from Long Island, and it's just it's just fascinating the way the, the 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 conditions of the country, inflation, concerns about crime, concerns about chaos, concerns about education, education loss, are just really coming back at Democrats right now in a way that that makes me think it's going to be a much worse election day for them than than anyone had predicted. And what you've just said. I think is a, another way of saying political gravity is reasserting itself, which is the thing that is most acute and daily, the daily experience of voters at cl as close to or while voting is going on will tend to influence an election. I mean, you know, you're, w w that all seems consistent with our understanding of politics right now. And a, and a story of Democrats holding off the, the, a wave is a harder story to tell just period, let alone given the evidence um, given the evidence of the moment. Uh, and one thing that's really on my mind is a state like Nevada, where the Republicans may very well pick up a Senate seat, they may flip, Republicans may flip every seat, Secretary of State, Senate, Governor. So that puts that state in a 
very different place for 2024, um, not only in terms of local ground, political strength for the presidential race, but also in terms of uh, verifying the vote. I want to talk a little more about crime and the way it's playing out in this election. So I don't think we've had a time in the United States in low these many decades in which crime was either rising or perceived as rising because that's part of what's happening right now. And the country or parts of the country have succeeded in continuing to decarcerate. Right. So we had uh, rising mass incarceration. Then it started to come down slowly, beginning in around 2009. And now we're having a backlash to some of those policies. And that is really playing out in New York, where the legislature passed bail reform. Bail reform is getting blamed, I think, largely unfairly for um, perceived increase in danger. And then you have the governor trying and Eric Adams, the mayor of New York City, trying to pull back and say, you know, we are being responsible. We're uh, we're not going to have the same level of bail reform. We're trying to ensure that, you know, quote, dangerous people are now not out on the streets. And yet it doesn't really seem to be working. And I just have this deep fear that as a political matter what doesn't not working as a political argument. Yes, I exactly. I feel like it's not resonating with the electorate. And I wonder what could ever be done to make the majority of Americans think that locking more people up is not actually the answer for preventing crime, right? It just seems like if you are the party that is trying to say there are other solutions and they have to do with prevention and dealing with, you know, the roots of why people commit crime, like poverty, um, having more social spending, that always seems to sort of miss in these moments where there's a lot of fear of crime. And that is just making me kind of crazy. At the same time, I'm tempted to blame what I think is sort of excessive rhetoric um, about defunding the police and these messages that seemed really out of touch. Hochul, however, the governor of New York, was never a defund advocate, has always distanced herself. That's been true about President Biden and most Democratic candidates. And yet it doesn't seem to matter. I don't really have a question here. I'm just more making a kind of exasperated observation about this dynamic. Can I turn it into a question, which is, well, first of all, you know, Republicans have have always benefited from the crime issue for a long time. It touches on race. It excites their voters for a variety of different ways. It's one of those issues where even if you say something out loud that's not true, it's fine because you're happy to get tagged with saying something untrue that keeps the conversation on your turf. So it's a, it seems a, 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 a consistent with our history in that regard. But Emily, what I wonder about is um, everything you just said, connect that with what we used to talk about years ago on this um, show, which was the unique confluence of conservatives who wanted to reduce the prison population and who were behind prison reform during the um, and and criminal justice reform during the Trump administration. That movement, which came from the right and and had people like Grover Norquist behind it, um, met up with a movement from the left and created this crazy coalition, which was in fact successful, maybe not successful enough by some people's estimations, but was successful in getting legislation passed. What happened to that movement, which was an interest in the right for a smarter criminal justice system than the just lock them up response? Um, So I guess that's the question to you. I think it's a great question. I think basically those um, 
reform instincts on the right have gotten swamped by the weaponizing of crime that's possible for conservatives. And I've especially noticed figures on the right who were sort of erstwhile reformers. They talked about how the return on investment for increased prison populations and spending is terrible, which is completely true. And yet attacking George Soros, a figure who has funded some of the progressive prosecutor candidates, just seems to be way too tempting. And so you see them doing that and attacking district attorneys who have, you know, dared to be in favor of any kind of reform. It just seems like there's too much political mileage to resist there. This week's Slate Plus bonus segment, Emily is going to talk to incarcerated journalist John Lennon and the creator of Freedom Reads, Dwayne Betts, the wonderful Dwayne Betts, about their Prison Letters Project. That's a project they launched to respond to letters they get from incarcerated people to try to get them more resources and amplify their voices. Dwayne is so great, and anytime he's on the GabFest, it's a special occasion. So check out Slate Plus. You can become a Slate Plus member by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. Also, I mentioned this in the last segment, we are... We didn't really go deep on Pennsylvania in that last segment because we are doing an entire bonus episode about it on Sunday. Check your GabFest feed on Sunday for a special extra episode about the enthralling and tense Senate and gubernatorial races in Emily's home state, in the Keystone State, in the Commonwealth, whatever you guys call it. We are joined from England by Adrian Woldridge, the global business correspondent for Bloomberg Opinion. Adrian, at the current rate, how long until you are the prime minister of Great Britain? Until I'm the prime minister, probably, uh, I think, till eternity and until the apocalypse or something like that. But uh, I think Rishi will be the prime minister for two years. I'd be surprised if he is unseated unless the Conservative Party has gone completely mad. Only sections of it, I think, have gone completely mad. But whether he survives after two years is is um, is much more problematic. I, th- I think the likelihood is that we will have a Labour government and uh, Keir Starmer will be prime minister. You've got even coded a ton of information to that. So tell our extremely educated GabFest audience, who is Rishi Sunak? And, and how is it that, that the government has fallen and fallen again, and yet there is no election? Well, under the British system, um, which is very different from your system, the, um, the governing party, the party with the most seats, um, chooses the prime minister. The prime minister is essentially just um, an instrument of the governing party. So they can change the prime minister whenever they feel like it, whenever they feel like it, within these very complicated rules that they've set for themselves. So there doesn't have to be a general election because the prime minister is first amongst equals. He's just first amongst the MPs. He's not somebody who stands and is voted for on a slate as, as you would have in a, in a presidential system. We've had a lot of prime ministers uh, recently. Um, Liz Truss was the most um, traumatic or problematic of them all. She lasted for as long as, you know, it takes a, a supermarket lettuce to to, to, to go off, uh, you know, 40-odd days. Um, and she's now been replaced by Rishi Sunak, um, who is interesting in many ways. Um, Rishi Sunak is the first non-white prime minister that we've ever had, first ethnic minority prime minister we've ever had. He's also the first, you know, non, non-Anglican prime minister we've ever had. He is a Hindu. He um, took his oath of 
um, of office when he came in uh, in as, M- as an MP on the Bhagavad Gita, you know, um, Gita. Um, he um, celebrates Diwali, and it was quite interesting that um, he was actually selected by the MPs on the the most important day of Diwali. So it was a sort of historic. It was a historic moment for a, what is a, a very old country. Um, um, he is um, extremely competent. Um, he's a technocrat. He's a person who runs things very well. Uh, he's a person who likes to manage things um, with a plum. He's the very opposite of Liz Truss's uh, predecessor and very opposite sort of physically of Liz Truss's uh, predecessor. I mean, Boris Johnson was sort of overweight, didn't comb his hair, couldn't comb his hair. His trousers were always falling down. You know, everything about him was disheveled and disorganized. I mean, and Rishi is the exact opposite of that. His suits are perfectly pressed. Even his leisure clothes are perfectly pressed. His hair perfectly combed. He's very neat, very thin ties, always perfectly turned out. And, you know, and, and, and he ran number 11 uh, Downing Street, which was he was the Chancellor before he he was Prime Minister with it was short gap. He ran that like a very very efficient machine, um, and um, Downing Street number ten, where the Prime Minister lives, was certainly not a very efficient machine. Um, and he's also a teetotaler. And if you remember, one of the many reasons why Boris Johnson um, was fell from office was uh, you know parties that were being held, rather raucous, wild parties being held in number eleven. And Rishi is not a person who um, is given to parties. So watching this from across the pond, I thought of the joke that it's only when things get terrible that you put a woman in charge and then things get worse and you put a person of color in charge, right? That you have all this inflation, that people are terribly concerned about the cost of living, that, um, you know, Brexit continues to unfold um, with some degree of non-resolution, right, in terms of Northern Ireland status and how that is really working. I feel like Rishi Sunak's advantage is that Liz Truss was such a disaster that he's going to come in and people are going to feel such relief that there's this person of great competence and organization, as you describe. And yet he's going to be confronting these underlying conditions, which are still a real problem for the country. And there's I think, going to be a lot of suffering and people worrying about these pocketbook issues. And I wonder how you think about those challenges for his leadership. Absolutely. You know, he has got an enormous... Britain was facing a very difficult set of circumstances when Liz Truss came in. Um, You know, with inflation, one of the worst levels of inflation, a very, very divided society, one of the worst levels of inflation in in the Western world, a very divided uh, society, very low productivity growth, and a cost of living crisis driven partly by Putin, partly by uh, deeper rooted things. All of those things um, were huge. Um, And a a balance book that the markets were being very generous to Britain. You know, there were lots of weaknesses that the markets were forgiving in in, in Britain. And what happened with Liz Truss is she sort of, (laughs) she turbocharged all of this. She's made all of these problems much bigger. And the markets are now sceptical about Britain in the way that they weren't before. So it's a very difficult set of problems. And he is going to have to be the austerity Prime Minister, you know, will have very serious um, squeeze on living standards for a prolonged period of time and squeeze on public spending for a prolonged period of time at a time when the National Health Service 
is you know really really thinly stretched and other public services are thinly stretched so it's a very difficult set of circumstances but he can sort of blame it on the sort of the kamikaze budget of Liz Truss and he can get some sort of you know kudos or credibility for writing the ship which I think we you know we are writing the ship a, a little bit so that that'll be more difficult uh Adrian we were uh fortunately, together this summer. And and Liz Truss was not, yes, she was not yet in office. And you had a, a persistent and consistent concern about what a, a prime ministership under Liz Truss would be. And you're, you seem to have been exactly right. Why didn't other conservatives recognize that, A? And, and the reason I ask that is, what does that mean about the Conservative Party and its tolerance for Sunak? I mean, it seems to be a restive party without uh, um, a, a, a clear path. And does he have to worry about that as he tries to do all these other complicated things he's got to do? Yeah, he, I mean, he, he, balancing forces in the Conservative Party is very difficult. And one of the things that he's done uh, recently is to reappoint a woman called Suella Braverman, who was sacked as Home Secretary for using her private email when she shouldn't have done, and is very much on the right of the party. And he's upset a lot of people by reappointing her. And a lot of people are very confused as to why he's reappointed her when he had a perfect excuse not to reappoint her. And I think that shows how strong the grip of the um, the nativist right, actually, um, is on the party. But the reason why, uh, the interesting thing about uh, Liz Truss, I think, is, uh, and I was indeed very worried about her, her rise, but I think it does show that um, the right of the party is scraping the bottom of the barrel, that when it comes to talent, charisma, and indeed, as we saw, competence, she wasn't you know, the sort of person you'd go for first. You know, they'd been through all the people that they thought they could go through, Theresa May, um, who they thought was one of theirs, and then even more than that, Boris Johnson. So they, they keep choosing these people and they explode um, because, um, uh, you know, the populist right um, is, 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 is running out of talents. And the only one lef ones left, really, that, who fulfil their ideological criteria are at least a thousand years old, you know, like John Redwood and 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 people, you know, they're they're, they're ancient. So it does show, you know, a problem with the right of the party on talent. Now, as I said, Rishi Sunak is um, on the right of the party. He's a conservative. He's a Thatcher. I mean, he's right wing conservative Thatcherite, but he's also connected with the real world. You know, he understands the difference between the real world and the fantasy world. And he's a technocrat. He's a right wing technocrat. And Liz Truss was, you know, well, let's do the Reagan thing. Let's cut taxes and let's increase spending and everything will be great. You know, she, she, she was unconnected with the real world because Britain doesn't print the world's reserve currency. So we can't really do what Reagan did. Um, so and I actually um, at one point a few years ago, um, when Liz Truss was um, Chief Secretary of the Treasury, which is number two in the Treasury, um, she invited me to have lunch with her in the House of Commons. So I had this l long lunch with her and she was very generous with her time and made a lot of comments um, uh, about uh, policy, which were directly contradicting the policy of the 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 the, the, the um, Chancellor of the Exchequer at the time, her boss, um, and I thought this lunch was very strange uh, because she kept taking photographs of me and the food that I was eating, and the the answers that I would give 
I mean, the questions that I would ask, the answers that she gave bear no relationship to what I was saying. It was like, it was just weird. The whole thing was was weird. So I thought, you know, I was going to supposed to be writing a profile for her for the budget page of The Economist. And I listened to all of this and I concluded after a while that I'm not going to write a profile because this person's going nowhere. You know, this is just somebody who's flaming out. And they, she phoned me up a few weeks later and said, where's that profile you're working on? And I said, well, I didn't do it. So I didn't do it. So I just, I just thought that this is obviously not somebody who's, you know, she's reached the, the, the heights and is, is, is now going to collapse. Um, I've still got the notes on this, this, this interview, but I did prove to be right, but she had to go through the job of prime minister before she, <laughs> she, finally, she finally flamed out. Why was she taking pictures of you and your food? She's obsessed with Instagram. She's absolutely obsessed with Instagram. So she took photographs of me, my food, and then of us standing <laughs> together next to the Thames. Everything she did, she would Instagram. So, so, she, so that made it public. She made all that. Oh, uh, absolutely. And she didn't ask me whether I was happy to be Instagram <laughs> with her, you know, uh, which I thought was, it was all. Um, but she, she's a very strange person. Um, uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Very, the whole thing was very odd. But I thought I didn't think that the right of the Conservative Party would go for her, partly because she is um, so odd in her personal behaviour and so uncharismatic. But they went for her, um, I, as I say, scraping the bottom of the barrel. But there are two sort of strands in um, the right at the moment. One is, one is a sort of populist strand which was embodied by Boris Johnson, which is, you know, the, the establishment is, a, is appalling, wisdom lies in ordinary people, deliver Brexit, all of that. And then there's the libertarian strand, which is that the point of Brexit was to turn Britain into the, you know, Singapore on Thames and to get rid of regulations and to, which is the opposite of levelling up and, and, and Brexit. It's, you know, let's, 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 let's have the fewest possible regulations and then lots, let's not be concerned about inequality because it doesn't matter as long as we've got growth. So we've seen both of those strands on the right, the populist strand with Johnson and the libertarian strand with Truss exploding. Um, so now we have, you know, a, a conservative technocrat in charge. Adrian, you are a student of global, you're, you write about global politics and global business. And so it's from America, it's easy to laugh. You know, we, there's so many jokes about haha Boris Johnson, haha Liz Truss, haha that lettuce. But is British politics more functional than American politics? At least they were able to expel these unpopular and unappealing leaders and maintain sort of the general, the, 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 the system has not failed. The system is working. That seems good. Yes, I think, it, 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 I mean, Boris Johnsonism is, is you know, is, is very similar in lots of ways to, to Trumpism. Um, and it, ha- it has the same lack of discipline, the same demonization of the establishment, the same, you know, just raw Jacksonian sort of energy. Um, uh, but it's not as deeply rooted as, as Trumpism, and it isn't quite as crazy as Trumpism, um, because Boris is playing at this sort of stuff, and Trump actually believes it. Um, and that's an important distinction, I think. Um, so there is a nasty side of British politics and there's a nasty side of Johnsonism. And I, I think about 100 MPs failed to declare which side that they were on in the, 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 the struggle for the nomination. And the reason they failed to declare which side they were on is that they were terrified of revenge from Johnson's people in the constituencies, that they, they thought that 
there'd be deselection or uncivil behaviour. So the, the, the Trumpists, the activists, the Johnsonians in the, in the constituencies are there and they're, not, you know, and they're angry and they will push for their man in the way that the Trumpists push for the, their man. But it isn't quite as... as it, it, hasn't gone, uh, it hasn't gone as far as, as, as it has in the United States. It's a similar sort of thing. As I say, you know, what, what's worse? If you're Trump, you believe what you're saying and you're not very well educated and you don't, you know, you don't understand that being elected president doesn't make you dictator of the country. You know, you just don't understand what the constitution is. Johnson does understand all of these things. He is educated and he doesn't, you know, doesn't believe most of it. He is playing at it. Does that make him a worse person or a better person than Trump? I'm not sure. But I, I would say with MPs, um, I think the Conservative Party in Parliament is going further in de-Johnsonifying itself than the Republicans are, that they've realised that Johnson is a bad man um, in the sense that he's utterly selfish, only interested in himself and will always betray them. So I, th I think that he's, you know, he's, 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 he's lost the party more than Trump's lost the Republican party. Adrian Wildridge, global business correspondent of Bloomberg Opinion. Adrian, thanks so much for coming on the GabFest. Thank you. Thank you. Justice Thomas briefly has protected Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, the Republican senator, from having to testify to a Georgia grand jury about the attempts to overturn the presidential election results in Georgia. Graham was enlisted, volunteered, was part of President Trump's rather sinister and troubling efforts to get Georgia to flip its results into Trump's favor. The Supreme Court will probably quickly hear Graham's arguments, uh, which had been rejected, Graham's arguments that he shouldn't have to testify, which were largely um, rejected by an appeals court that had a Trump majority in the 11th Circuit. But for the moment, Graham doesn't have to go testify. Uh, what is this Georgia grand jury investigating, Emily, and why do they want to talk to Graham? It's called a special purpose grand jury. It can sit for longer periods than a regular grand jury, and it has the power to subpoena whoever the targets of an investigation are to, so that they can provide testimony. But it doesn't itself issue indictments. So basically, it's there to aid the prosecutor to figure out whether there should be an indictment. But it's not a formal criminal grand jury in the usual order of things. To me, this seems like a distinction without a difference. But in an effort to throw up whatever legal chaff is possible in this investigation, some of the targets are not surprisingly making a big issue of it. But can you go back? I mean, it's what are they investigating? It's it's the Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis is investigating what? What? Why does why does this grand jury exist? What is its purpose? The grand jury exists because Donald Trump, when he was president, made a famous phone call to Brad Raffensperger, then the or still to Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State in Georgia, saying, "I just need eleven thousand votes and change. Can you help me find those votes?" Georgia has a statute that seems to directly address the issue of trying to interfere with the results of an election, and so the question is whether the district attorney of Fulton County is going to indict Trump or other figures involved in this effort to what appears to be pressure Raffensperger to go look for some presumably non-existent votes to throw the election to Trump. And it not only includes Trump, but also his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, who on Wednesday of this week was compelled to testify uh, by a judge in that case as well. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is, in my view, one of the most serious, probably the most serious legal threat that Trump and Meadows and potentially Graham face because the statute is such a close fit for the conduct here and the call that Trump made to Raffensperger is on tape. And Graham's defense is that he is that when he was making the phone calls, he was uh, acting in his his position as um, as chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, and then he was um, essentially on a fact finding mission um, to investigate the uh, possible voter fraud in Georgia, which shielded him for a while, but then didn't, and now uh, and now may shield him. Although Thomas, all Thomas did was. Put things on pause. I kind of think Thomas is trolling here. What we really found out was that Thomas is not planning to accuse himself from these January 6 investigatory matters, even though his wife, Jenny Thomas, was involved in um, lobbying for, um, you know, some of the election brouhaha leading up to January 6th. In any case, the Supreme Court is going to resolve this uh, defense from Lindsey Graham. I had to, he's, Graham is claiming that he doesn't have to testify because of the speech and debate clause in the Constitution. I was so flummoxed by that that I had to go look it up. I thought that the speech and debate clause applied to members of Congress when they are speaking on the floor of Congress. Like, that's when you're doing your legislative work in the most clear way. But it has sometimes been interpreted more broadly to protect their, quote, legislative work outside of the context of actual floor debates. And that's the kind of, um, I would argue, thin read that Graham is counting on here. We should say he did win a kind of partial victory before the district court judge who said he has to testify on matters that obviously had nothing to do with a fact-finding mission for Congress, but not about things that might fall under that rubric. I don't know whether the Supreme Court's going to go for that or not. There is this absurdity to this claim. I remember I have a friend, former colleague of ours who I won't name, who is basically a freelance writer and and his he did basically deducted every single thing he spent money on from his taxes because he said it's all research so like if he'd go out for a meal with you he'd like deduct it because he's like that's research or if he went to a movie that's research so it was all tax deductible and i feel that's the kind of claim that lindsey graham is making is that anything i do is a legislative purpose like it doesn't matter that there's no committee investigation that's been created there's no bill that's under discussion there's no official investigation it's all like i'm just i'm just gathering string for a future legislative act and i do remember i mean there's a, there's you know hypocrisy is so easy to find and and so hard to punish and who cares anyway but one of the claims that republicans kept making about the attempts to get trump's tax records if you guys remember this was that it was that it wasn't a legitimate legislative purpose, that the that the, this committee that wanted to see Trump's tax records had no leg- legitimate legislative purpose, therefore shouldn't get to see Trump's tax records. And here you have Graham that's, who's basically making the, like, you know, trying to make the flip side claim, trying to say that everything I do is a legitimate legislative purpose. It's much more far-fetched than a committee act that actually wanted it. Yeah, his epistemological rigor is... Um it was particularly flabby on on these election claims. He also was was uh, you know said uh, um, excitable things about the mail carrier from um, Erie, Pennsylvania, who said um, that he saw postal um, you know his supervisors tampering with mail in ballots. And then when they and which on its face sounded incredibly sketchy, but Graham rushed to that. You know, again in the same. In this same capacity as um, 
uh, you know, the one true Sherlock Holmes on the case, um, when the more plausible reason is um, to lend credence to anything that would support um, Trump's uh, uh, lie about the election being stolen. And then, of course, the investigation into that eerie mail carrier was essentially what was seemed true on its face at the time, which was he was just like assuming some stuff might have happened that he heard from a guy might have happened. Um, and so the, the, the Georgia case is um, uh, part of a um, larger sort of uh, role that he was playing um, in trying to keep the, the, the ball in the air for President Trump at that period. I mean, Emily, my assumption is that a lot of these folks, Meadows, Graham, Trump himself, who was subpoenaed by the January 6th committee, they're just they're just running out the clock. They're just they're playing just to delay things. And the way this the sloth of our court system and the fact that the House will almost certainly be a Republican House next year and they'll disband that select committee in 14 seconds means that that like Trump will never have to testify to that committee and that Meadows and Graham may be able to just sort of extend this. Well, Meadows long enough that they don't actually have to face consequences. You are for sure right about the subpoena from the Congressional Committee investigating January 6th and Trump, right? Because once the Republicans win the House, that subpoena would have to be reissued and it never will be. In fact, uh, Bart Gelman wrote an interesting piece for The Atlanta this week predicting that what that Republican House will do is start impeaching Joe Biden and maybe some other folks, too. So... Absolutely. When it pertains to Congress. I mean, Fannie Willis's investigation in Fulton County, Georgia, is different, right? Like that's a state investigation. So, yes, I still think that Graham and Meadows are stalling, but Fannie Willis is not going to be out of power in November. One thing we should note about Graham, though, is that I think he's in a different category than Meadows, even though he was um I think he's been told, and maybe, Emily, this is baloney, but um, he's been told he's just a, a fact witness. I mean, in other words, he's not, a, he's not a target or anything like that. Yeah, that's true. Let us go to cocktail chatter when you are engaged in a long conversation with the president and having a back and forth, and you want to share something interesting with the president. Emily, what will you be sharing? Ooh, now this is going to seem like I'm currying a favor. I wanted to note that the Justice Department this week formally banned the use of subpoenas and court orders to seize the communications records like notes and tapes of reporters in order to try to get them to testify to uncover confidential sources when the government is investigating a leak. And this is... um, the latest chapter in this long running fight over, um, you know, what happens if there's a leak in the federal government and the person accused of leaking talked to a reporter along the way. Uh, the Obama administration took some steps to try to get records um, from journalists and the Trump administration did that as well. And now Attorney General Merrick Garland is saying that with very few exceptions, this is off limits. And It's a move toward, um, as Garland said, recognizing the crucial role that a free and independent press plays in our democracy. And it just it's always just really interesting whether reporters get treated with a kind of extra solicitude as opposed to anybody else who a source might be talking to. Um, And this is a move toward sort of recognizing 
the free press as separate um, and and having a bit of its own protections. Um, I was teaching a class this week in which um, the guest said that part of what's at issue in situations like this is, you know, the Constitution talks about protecting free speech and the free press. And usually we just mush those things together because there is no way to license reporters or kind of limit who calls themselves a journalist. But this is the kind of move that suggests that there is a separate protection for the free press. And it's obviously just a voluntary one that the Biden administration has adopted. A future president can change it. But I think it will be um, a source of relief for reporters who talk to sources in the federal government. It will last until day two of the next Republican presidential administration. Day six. John Dickerson, what is your chatter? My chatter is about two organizations trying to shine light, keep us all paying attention to the various different challenges to our free and fair um, election system. One is States United um, Democracy Center, and the other is um, Third Way, which is the kind of center-left um, uh, think tank which has launched the Paul Revere Project. Both of them are clear. I talked to them this week in preparing for election day and election week and election perhaps all the way into January to um, be able to be on my toes about where all the challenges exist in the various legislatures at the precinct volunteer level, state legislatures, and how these ripples will go out from 22 into 24. Anyway, it's all you know, uh, great material that they have on their websites. And and both were also quite uh, anxious to promote and say what is true, which is that while we are having these conversations, millions of Americans are voting safely, securely, and without issue, despite the intimidation that was taking place in uh, Arizona with the um, guys uh, with, with weapons near the the drop boxes. But, you know, that voting, even though they were, were expecting hard weather, um, voting is still safe and secure um, in the overwhelming vast, vast, vast majority of the ways in which it's taking place and will take place. Um, so that's an important thing to remember. And then their work is also important to check out if you're um, concerned about where there might be issues. My chatter, two chatters, because I just saw something that delighted me so much. I'm going to add a second chatter. First is about a depressing story in Wired, hot on the trail of a mass school shooting hoaxer, which is a really disturbing story about how in towns across the U.S., but especially in Minnesota, there's been a spate of fake, false mass school shooting reports. And so the, the, the emergency services, the cops will get a call that there's a school shooting in a local school and the entire, uh, emergency first responders uh, armature of that town and and nearby towns will galvanize and gather. The school will go into lockdown. There will be panic uh, and chaos and, and distress. And then it turns out it's just a, it's just a, it's a hoax. And there's a a bunch of them. And these are made by wired investigated and figured out is being made from calls overseas they were spoofing American numbers, but it was through IP addresses out of Ethiopia. But they really, the IP addresses, the, the person making the call could have been from anywhere. And hugely disruptive, basically anonymous, almost impossible to stop. And I actually am kind of wondering, man, if I were, if I were a Russian troll and I want to 
screw with Americans. I would do this in every school. I would do this in, you know, 10 school districts a day just for kicks because it's incredibly disruptive and it causes panic. It is an act of terror. It causes terror and fear and and increases the chances of accidents from these emergency vehicles rushing, you know, people's own fear response that, you know, maybe someone will get accidentally shot. Who knows what can happen? And it's, it's just a really disturbing story about something that's been happening at a small scale that could happen to big scale. So that was depressing. Uh, on the delight end, so the fact that Elon Musk is about to take over Twitter has prompted sort of apocalyptic thinking from some people on Twitter who are all like, oh, this is the last day of this website, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and there was an amazing tweet uh, thread from Ben Collins at, at one underscore underscore mark. And he just invited people to submit their favorite tweets of all time. And it's this collection of amazing, funny tweets. It goes on and on. And I was starting to read this this morning as I was having my coffee and I had to actually stop. I only got like 10 tweets in because I was snorting up my coffee as I was drinking it. There's so many great tweets. I know Twitter is a, is a problematic website, a problematic platform, but man, the stuff that's funny on Twitter is so funny. So check it out. And of course, listeners, you have also sent us chatter. You tweet them to us at, at @slategabfest, and you email them to us at gabfest at slate.com. And this week's listener chatter comes from Brian DeGear. Hi, GabFest. This is Brian from Irvine, California. And my chatter is about this really great video series from Fiona Apple on her experience as a court watcher in St. George's County, Maryland. Apparently, Fiona started court watching during the pandemic by attending proceedings over Zoom. In this eight-part video series, she talks about injustices ranging from seemingly small indignities to what feel like true systemic conspiracies against folks that are just trying to navigate the justice system. At a time when we've heard so much about celebrities using their platforms for bad, it's really refreshing to hear about a celebrity using their platform for real undeniable good. That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Shana Roth, our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants, Ben Richmond, Senior Director for Podcast Ops, Alicia Montgomery, VP of Audio for Slate. Follow us on Twitter at, at @slategabfest. Tweet chatter to us there. And please come to our live show on Wednesday. We'll be in Atlanta. Love to see you there. Slate.com slash GabFest live to get tickets. Uh, Wednesday at 7 p.m. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. We'll see some of you on Wednesday in Atlanta, and we'll talk to all of you again on Thursday. Hello, Slate Plus. I know usually it is David who welcomes you to Slate Plus, but I have taken over Slate Plus today because I want to talk about this project um, that I am part of launching that I'm super excited about. And I have two of my favorite people in the world to discuss this with. One is John Lennon, who is a journalist. He writes from the place where he's incarcerated and is a frequent contributor to The New York Times and Esquire and has a new excellent piece out in The New York Review of Books. Hi, John. Hey, Emily. Thanks for having me. So glad you're here. Um, and the second guest today is Dwayne Batts, who GabFest listeners know and love already. He is a poet and a lawyer and um, the creator of Freedom Reads, an amazing project to bring libraries into prison. Hi, Dwayne. Hey, how's it going? 
We are here to talk about the Prison Letters Project, which is a project that we launched to respond to letters that we get from incarcerated people to try to amplify their voices and, if possible, bring more resources to bear on all of the issues they face. John, could you talk a little bit about why you have come on board to this project, to my great delight, which was, of course, Dwayne's idea, um, and what you're hoping to accomplish? Yeah, so when Dwayne brought it to my attention, he, he was just talking about how it stemmed from the 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 magazine piece that I had read that you wrote uh, about Utica O'Brien. And I was like, wow, you know, I really, I really dig that piece because you're sort of like confronting, it's kind of like a first person style uh, piece. You're, and you're really like confronting, like, what is it that we, what is it that is like sort of our duty or that we can do as journalists? And you know, how much is this like, I mean, I just love that you were sort of confronting that. And I, and I totally remembered it when he, when he brought it up. And so when he sort of explained that you know she was trying to just make a, a newsletter out of it and, and he brought it to you that I may be interested and then you sort of suggested well, let's just do it together I, I just thought it was, I was just obviously honored but then it's also I was just t- telling Dwayne and he was like how is it that when guys hear about that how do you sort of handle that so it's like there's so many people that are in need like you to go is in need and then it's like it's tough to sort of like tell folks about it to be excited about it and then it's like, also, it's just like, well, well, maybe I should write a letter to Emily. So how are you guys going to sort of highlight mine? Or like, it's always that kind of thing. So while it's exciting, it's it's also an opportunity. It's also a balancing act, too. And I think we can get into that a bit. Yeah. So just to clarify, we're taking these letters in, writing back to folks, asking them if we have their permission to publish aspects of their stories with their initials as opposed to their full names on a public database that Freedom Reads is hosting. And then you're leading an effort to also write a kind of periodic newsletter for the New York Times Magazine that will highlight some of these stories. So Dwayne, you and I have been talking about this for a long time, and you've been super encouraging and also, I think, appropriately like cautious or skeptical about various aspects of this. And I just wonder how you're feeling about it at this point. I'm of two minds to be perfectly honest. I I recognize that the great power in this is that all of a sudden people inside can feel like they're, they're seen. You know, you do, John knows better than I, I'm just the eight and a half years, but literally I, I didn't know what the New York Times was. And what happened is if the best I could hope for or the best any of us could hope for was to be the subject matter of a story. And that very rarely happened. I think with the, the letters project does is says that you don't you want just the subject of a story i'm going to give you a, a, a sort of conduit i'm going to be a conduit for you to have a bit of a voice in the world a bit of a footprint and so i think it's amazing but i say i'm of two minds of it because i think the the, the challenging part is um is once you reveal a deep need we might be confronting a deep sense of disappointment when if the world doesn't care if, if the lawyers don't care but um, my optimistic side says that revealing that deep need is, 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 is our duty. And I think satisfying that need and, and sort of giving people, you know, me, you and I are both lawyers. But when people say, can you represent me? I'm quick to tell them I am not that kind of lawyer. And, um, and, and so I was like, we satisfy the need by giving people voice. And I, and I hope that some people get free like Utico. But um, but I also hope that the awareness is the first step towards whatever happens next. It has to be. Yeah. 
I mean, I share all of those feelings. One thing that, like, regular people can do that I think is super meaningful is um, check out this database, write to us, and sign up to be a pen pal for someone who's on the inside. That's powerful in itself. And to me, it was really driven home by the fact that when Utico wrote to me, his initial letter got buried in this huge pile of mail at the New York Times. And the only reason I went to look for it was that he had a pen pal, um, Karen Oler, who emailed me in a kind of urgent way that got my attention. Um, To reach us, you can write to prisonlettersproject at yale.edu or um, the snail mail address at Yale Law School. And we're going to be connecting soon with um, a pen pal organization to kind of set up a formal way to help people connect. But there are also lots of good pen pal organizations that you can find on your own. One of the things that's been really moving to me so far about this project is um, I have amazing students. John has gotten to know them a little bit, too. Law students, mostly at Yale, Natalie Smith, Jonathan Terry, Partha Sharma, who've been working on this project for a year. And their um, communications with the incarcerated people, I think, are mutually full of richness and benefit. I mean, the students tell me they've learned a lot. And I think the fact that there's someone on the outside who's very caring and trying to be helpful, who's writing back to people over and over again, I think, I hope, is meaningful um, to the people who have written to us. I don't know, John, how you take that in. Does that feel to you like something that's of real worth on its own, or does it seem like a small thing relative to the immense need that Dwayne is talking about? No, look, it's a huge thing. I think, you know, I think guys on the inside, I should say, and women too, uh, understand that uh, when they go away, when their sort of appeals are exhausted, or wherever they're at in their appeals, they, they sort of are always thinking about, like, the part that media plays well, sometimes in their conviction itself, some, most of the time it ain't good, uh, the part the media played. And then some of them sort of have dreams. Many of them have dreams. It's like, man, I got to get media involved like for them to care about this thing that happened. And so I think a lot of things that we've come across initially with a lot of the letters is like we get a lot of letters and it's kind of like, hey, check this out. This is an injustice. I'm, I'm innocent. And Emily, I need you to help me like you helped you to go. So in a way... I think it's important to put out there, like, you know, it's not for us to sort of, you know, sort of get to the bottom of this and find out, like, who's really innocent. And I think it's, but at the same time, it's important to sort of navigate that and say, because that's a complicated issue. A lot of times I look at this as we're kind of like the antithesis of, you know, this very, very popular genre, if you will, that is happening at the same time that we're doing and doing this. And that is true crime. And if anything, like the piece that you wrote about Utico is this subset of true crime that's, you know, in my opinion, a bit more admirable than this sort of rehashing of somebody's lurid details for the entertainment of millions, right? So we're 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 you know, hopefully looking to highlight these these letters of what happened with an individual person. So it's it's great that we could sort of document that on the website that Freedom Reads hosts. And uh, once in a while, we're going we're gonna to highlight some of those letters that really sing. I'll try to do that in a, in a synopsis uh, in, uh, in the New York Times newsletter. And, but again, even that's a far cry from a, from a feature magazine piece like you did on Utico. I mean, I plan to hopefully do some True Innocence pieces too in the magazine, but those take a lot of resources. So we're, we're, trying, to, we're trying to figure this out on what this is and, 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 and how we do this and, and 
um, what that looks like, what a newsletter piece looks like. And we will be fulfilling some people's needs and, and highlighting uh, what happened to them with this newsletter. So I'm excited about that. The one thing I would say, too, is I have a stack of letters that I haven't responded to. And, and I feel sometimes I feel deeply and immensely guilty because people have written me and they wanted something, you know, they wanted they wanted a response. And I think it's a duty to respond to folks. But um, sometimes the world gets the best of you and you have other commitments. And so what I also appreciate about the project is it becomes um, a resource. It becomes a place where you could expect to get a response and get a response. But the other thing I'll say is like I was guilty. And, and we talk about what the Lettuce Project says. It's, it's a pathway to be heard, but it's not necessarily just a pathway to be heard for innocence. It's people who I'm sure write letters and say that I was I was sentenced to too much time in prison. They write letters say that I've, I've been going up for parole for years and I haven't had an attorney. And so what I also think is that this becomes an opportunity for the public to hear more about what the what the character of the challenges of incarceration um, and, and getting out in mercy and freedom look like, as opposed to simply just, you know, because if, if true crime, if one of the major problems with that is this obsession with the lurid details of guilt, I think one of the major challenges with criminal justice reform is to to break through the that wall and make the public understand that the need for relief isn't just predicated on innocence. You know, it's predicated on what kind of society do we want to have? Do we want to have a merciful society? Do we want to have like one that believes in, in atonement and forgiveness. And, and right now, frankly, we just we just don't. Yeah. I mean, I think we all agree that stories about excessive punishment we're very interested in. And numerically speaking, there are so many of those. I mean, the country is just filled with those stories. And I know, John, you've been talking about how you're hungry for letters from people that say, like, I admit that I did this crime, but I've just been in here for so long. And um and I think I'm ready to go. And here's why. And those are absolutely stories, the complicated gray area stories that we also want to tell. In Europe, you know, you're not going to really serve, no matter what you did, uh, for the most part, more than 20 years. Uh, and in America, that's clearly not the case. We, uh, so, sure, I mean, I echo Dwayne's sentiment, of course, with that. I, too, am guilty. I, too, am accountable for for what I did. So, um so sure, I mean, I, I mean, as somebody that is a first-person journalist, and I always sort of like relate to, which is not to say that sort of, I'm not sort of interested in the true innocence stories. Absolutely, it's like the holy grail what you did with you to go to sort of journalism for a criminal justice writer. But to his point, I mean, like that's what we're looking for. We're looking for like these candid, you know, sort of pleas uh, for help. We got one the other day. Uh, I think Partha and Natalie forwarded me. Uh, this fascinating letter by a uh, uh, you know, a professor at at Princeton who uh, had a relationship. It was a brief letter. She had a relationship with somebody who um, was in prison, you know, since he was 16 years old, and who had killed her friend. And they sparked up a relationship that I just was so moved by that he admits to. And they've and they've had this relationship, and I think why is that? Why that spoke to me? It's interesting on many fronts, but in in our, in our nation, in our prisons, we don't talk about uh, restorative justice. We don't have programs with that. We're sort of figuring it out on my own. I've been left to do it. Fortunately, I've been left to. I mean, I've been able to do it on the page with really smart editors. Uh, most people don't. That letter really touched me, and 
I hope to talk about that with you and the students. But yeah, so we, we are hungry for those letters. Great. Um, I think that's a great note to end on. I could talk with you guys all day about a million topics, but I don't want to take up too much of your time. You have one minute left. That's <laughs> the, the note that it's... <laughs> but thank you so much for this. Yeah, thank you both so much. Bye, Slate Plus. Talk to you next week.